I want to begin here by having a word of prayer uh, before we get into our um, get into our message here this morning. And so I invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all your wonderful blessings. We thank you for this holy Sabbath day that we can come apart, be together in the household of faith with like believers, and that we can learn from your Holy Spirit as we look through your word. Uh, we thank you, Father, for Jesus, that he came and, and showed us how to live a righteous life, how to be overcomers, and has given us uh, hope, hope that we too can can live as he did and and be a part of the family uh, again and and be members of the kingdom. Father, we thank you for the blessings we receive through the week and your protective care. And um, we thank you, Father, for the forgiveness of sin. We ask that uh, you continue to uh, watch over us and angels that excel in strength uh, to to be with us and uh, to help guide us in our daily walk and uh, we pray father that as we go through this day um, this sabbath day that we may keep it holy and that um, you'll give me the words to speak here this morning um we're going to go through some of the history of uh, our enemy and his tactics. And, and I want to uplift Jesus, but we need to know, Father, our enemy. And so give me the words to speak to the congregation this morning. Thank you so much for Jesus, for hearing this prayer in his name. Amen. I want to begin by looking at a familiar scripture for Adventists. Um, those who are members of the present truth church of God. Isn't that right? We say we, we are a church of present truth. Uh, but I want to begin by looking at Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. And this is a scripture that's very familiar, uh, or should be, to a church that proclaims to be a church of present truth, a church of prophecy. Uh, Daniel 12 and verse 1. And, and I'm going to go through quite a lot today. Um, I'll probably go over... Um, some time here, um, but uh, um, I think it's very important. Uh, so let's turn to Daniel 12 and verse 1, and we read here, And at that time shall Michael stand up. Now we know who Michael is. Michael is Jesus, isn't he? Uh, he is the archangel, described as the archangel. He's in charge of the angels. He's the Son of God. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered. There's some hope, isn't there? Everyone that shall be found written in the book. And we want to be in, written in the book, do we not? But what I want to look at here, and just a reminder, uh, in case... Um, Maybe some of us have had our heads in the sand. I'm not sure. There is a crisis coming. And that crisis surpasses anything this world has ever seen. And I think that that's saying something. That is really saying something. Because, you know, you look back through Bible history, and there are a lot of, a lot of times of trouble. And, and 
I want to look specifically, bring to your attention, you know, God destroyed the world one time with a flood. And that seems like a terrible time of trouble to me. What about you? I mean, Noah and his family, they were saved by entering the ark. But let me tell you, that ark was tossed about, wasn't it? It wasn't all peaches and cream. But guess what? All who entered that ark were saved from the destruction of the world. Now Jesus said to us in Matthew 24 and verse 37, He said, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So we know that there is a crisis coming, friends, and in understanding how to get ready for it, we have to know who and what our enemy is. And, you know, I, I don't particularly like to spend a large amount of time studying this subject because I like to get people's attention on Jesus <laughs> you know, and, and not the enemy. Um, that's really where we need to keep our attention focused, isn't it? It's, it's on Jesus. However, I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. He was talking to the church there at Corinth and he said, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You see, if we are ignorant of the devices of the devil, he's going to take advantage of us. And the Bible tells us what we need to know about the enemy we face, and we'd better uh, pay attention if we want to be among those who are saved. Now, the powers that the devil has used, let me say that again, the powers that the devil has used to try to enslave the world and to destroy the people of God, Um, are seven throughout history. There are seven powers, essentially. And they're described um, as ferocious beasts in the books of Daniel and Revelation. And I want to begin in Revelation. If you turn to Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to get into some of this prophecy a little bit here. We're talking about knowing our enemy. Revelation chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. It says, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. Now, these seven heads, or seven mountains are seven kings, right? That's what it said. Or you could say seven kingdoms, or, or actually seven powers. And these are seven powers through which the devil has worked, essentially, um, from the beginning of time. And he's going to use these powers to the end of time to try to destroy the people of God. Because he wants to take the entire world captive. The devil's principal objective, friends, from the beginning of the world was to control every single human being in this world. That was his objective. You see, because he wants to be God, and he wants to be worshipped as God. Right? The testimony of Jesus tells us that the in the final crisis, which is soon to, to come upon us, beloved, uh, we're going to learn that the devil is a tyrant. That's what the testimony of Jesus tells us. He wants absolute control over not just the bodies, but the minds of every person. He wants absolute control of your 
mind. And the methods that the devil uses to try to get control of the human mind, um, they're countless, they're innumerable. In Revelation 17, 5, you go back to Revelation 17, verse 5, it says, And upon her forehead was a name written. What is that name? Mystery. Have you ever thought about that? What a name. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. That, that, that uh, uh, name, mystery. Some people wonder, what does that mean? Well, the religion of Babylon, if we go back in history, it was associated with what are considered mysteries. Babylon was the first great power in, in Bible history by which Satan tried to gain complete control over the human race. So, that's where we want to start here. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, and we'll see the origin of this power. And, and this was a short time after the flood. We talked about in Noah, that flood. Now, when we, we talk about Babylon, I think we often think of Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? But Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon is actually called by historians the Neo-Babylonian Empire, or, or, or in other words, the New Babylonian Empire. Because Babylon existed before the days of Nebuchadnezzar, you see. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 10, in Genesis 10 you have the, the nations um, that descended from Noah. And if you go to verse 6, it lists the sons of Ham. Ham was the son of, of Noah, right? One of his sons. In Genesis 10 and verse 6, we read, And the sons of Ham. And it distinguishes who those sons were. It says, Cush, and Misraim, and Put, and Canaan. Now you'll notice there that one of his sons was named Misraim. Now Misraim is a Hebrew word. And, and this is significant. It's a Hebrew word that when translated into English is the word Egypt. Egypt is the English word and Mizraim is the Hebrew word. Okay? Put is the name of another country that's actually in northeastern Africa. And then there was another son. His name is Canaan. And you know all about Canaan and the Canaanites. They established the territory that the children of Israel took over. So you had Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, right? But there was another son that was mentioned there in verse 6. And who was the first one listed? Uh, the son of Ham. His name was Cush, right? Now notice who Cush begot in Genesis 10 and verse 8. Move down a couple of uh, uh, scriptures there. It says, And Cush begat who? He begat Nimrod. So it says, And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Now, this Nimrod is a principal character in ancient history because he was the one who founded the nation or the kingdom of Babylon. Let's go on. If you notice here, in beginning with verse 9, we'll begin reading here. It says, He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, is speaking of Nimrod, where it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Right? 
We know that is Babylon. So at the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Calne in the land of Shinar. Out, <coughs> excuse me, out of that land went forth Asher. We'll get back to that in just a second. Out of that land went forth Asher, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Calah, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Calah, the same as a great city. So we read here in these verses, first of all, that Babylon was the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. It said they're Babel. It was the very first one. Now in verse 11, remember, said we get back to it, it said that out of that land went forth Asher. Well, this translation, I guess that translation is possible, but the sentence construction in Hebrew actually retains the name Nimrod as the subject, not Asher. So it, it actually reads, from that land he went into Assyria, speaking of Nimrod. So Nimrod, the first king of Babylon, if you go on into verse 11 and down, you find that he actually built Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. So <clears throat> sometimes we can get confused there and we've got to do a little bit of digging into into the scriptures, don't we, and into some of these words, because to me, as I was reading it, it didn't make sense to me. You're talking about Nimrod, and then you get into verse 11, and it moves to Asher. Well, that may be a mistranslation. It can go one way or other, but in the context, in the Hebrew context especially, uh, and the way they constructed it, it's still speaking of, of Nimrod. And so he's the one who built Nineveh. Nimrod was the first person after the flood that organized men into armies. And he began to wage war against his neighbors and to bring them into uh, subjection to himself. And he developed a kingdom. And this, by the way, was in defiance of the kingdom of heaven. You know, the creator is the king, isn't he? And he's described throughout the scriptures as a great king. And Jesus is described as a king. But the devil designed to set up his counterfeit, you see, of heaven's government down in this world. So through Nimrod, he was using Nimrod, he developed the first you know, kingdom on earth, so to speak, outside the kingdom of heaven. You know, In heaven you, you worship the king because the king is God. So that's where the idea came from that uh, kings were gods or deities. And you worship the king and the kings had absolute control over everyone's life in the kingdom. That's where that idea came from, see. And if a king decided to kill you, what happened? Well, you're dead. Because he would kill you. Now, before this time, how were men? Before Nimrod had organized and, and, and created a kingdom, men were free, weren't they? They were sovereign. You could say they were sovereign citizens of the world. They were under the government of God, and they had freedom. But as soon as these kingdoms... Um, began to be established on the earth, like Nimrod here, men were brought into slavery or servitude to other human beings. And the testimony of Jesus says that all of the devil's plans lead men to be the slaves of other men. Don't we see that throughout history? So if, if one uh, you know, man is trying to enslave another man, you know what spirit he is what spirit he is of, and that's the devil. All his plans are to, to enslave men to other men. That's where all the devil's plans are directed. Then if all men are the slaves of some other men, if the devil can control the men at the top, you see, 
he has control over the entire population, doesn't he? So you begin to get this picture of, of our enemy and what his plans are, and things start to kind of begin to make sense as you go through history, the history of, of the, the world. You see what's happening. And so the uh, object of Babylon was to bind all mankind in blind and absolute submission to what we call a hierarchy. And it was entirely dependent on the sovereigns of Babylon, see. Because what Nimrod was trying to do, he, he intended to create a one-world government and to control every single person in the world. And that was the, that was the whole object of Babylon. And let me tell you, it would have happened if God had not confused their languages there at the Tower of Babel. It definitely would have happened. Why do you think God did what he did? There was going to be a one-world government. They were going to control every single person in the world, and they were going to bring into servitude and slavery every single person in the world. And we've got to remember that, you know, speaking of time, the world was was still in its infancy. And the devil was going to create this monster that would eliminate all human freedom of choice and he was going to force everyone into servitude to himself. That's been his goal. And if you didn't comply, of course, then what would happen? You'd just be liquidated. You'd be removed. And that's been the case throughout history. And friends, it's going to repeat itself here at the end of time. So to stop that from happening, God confused their languages and and the peoples of the earth were dispersed all over. So it became impossible to set up a one world government because you couldn't communicate with the different people. And actually, if you think about that, the world lost a great deal and we've had a lot of difficulty clear up to to today uh, as a result of all these different languages, haven't we? But have, have you noticed more and more, and, and we're of an age, <laughs> we can go back several years and we, we can see where more and more countries around the world know how to speak English, don't they? So things are beginning to get centralized. It was necessary um, to prevent the devil from centralizing power and forcing the entire world under his control by a one-world government. That's why God did what he did there at Tower of Babel. Also, speaking about Babylon, it was the place where the entire system of paganism was first and most fully developed. The way that the kings of these ancient pagan kingdoms controlled the population was by the means of pagan priesthoods. You know, because they they needed to have a counterfeit to God. Let me ask you, at this time, was there religion on, on the earth? Sure there was. There was a point where there was still, um, up until the flood, there was still that Garden of Eden till God took it to heaven, and then after the flood, Noah still worshipped God, didn't he? So there was still religion on the earth, and then there were these counterfeit religions that began to pop up through Nimrod, and they, they developed these pagan uh religions, these pagan kingdoms, and and they had their own priests, you see. And they they were very, very powerful individuals, these pagan priests. You can see that in the nation of Egypt in the time of Moses, can't you? These 
pagan priests became very powerful individuals. Incidentally, to become a member of these pagan religions, you had to go through initiation ceremonies. And these ceremonies were mysterious and secret. They were called mysteries. Remember that name we read there in Revelation? That name on the forehead of Babylon? Mystery, right? One of the things that people had to do to be initiated into these mysteries was that they had to go to confession. They had to go to a secret confession to a pagan priest. And the pagan priest delved into every secret of that person's life and and their thoughts even. And then after they had confessed, that pagan priest had, well... I mean, think about it. They had tremendous power over that person because if they, that person didn't do as they were instructed or if they, they broke confidence, the priest could essentially blackmail them, couldn't they? Now, when the Neo-Babylonian Empire was destroyed, the city of Babylon was destroyed. You know, with Nebuchadnezzar, his grandson. Remember, with Daniel... And the handwriting on the wall. Remember that? Well, the priests of that Babylonian religion, they, f- they fled from uh, Babylon and they went up into a place called Mount Turkey. That's what we call it today. They established the same Babylonian religion, but this time it was in the city of Pergamos. Have you ever heard of Pergamos? Well, let's open our Bibles or turn back to Revelation chapter 2. And notice what the Lord says about this Babylonian religion. Pergamos became the headquarters of this Babylonian religion after the priests had fled Babylon, see, from the Medes and the Persians, and, and, and Babylon was destroyed. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, notice this, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write... These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. I want you to notice, friends, that the Lord says this is Satan's headquarters. Pergamos. Now, why was it Satan's headquarters? Because the priests from the city of Babylon, when Babylon was destroyed, had traveled to Pergamos and made that the headquarters of their religion. And let me tell you, it was from Pergamos that the Babylonian religion was taken to Rome. Now, the Babylonian religion involved what? What was its main... Uh, main tenet of the Babylonian religion was sun worship, wasn't it? Sun worship. Now I mentioned that there have been seven, according to Revelation 17, 9 and 10, there were seven heads, seven major powers through whom the devil has worked since the beginning of time to, to what? To try to control of the world to try to enslave uh, people and to destroy God's people. Babylon was the first I mentioned uh, that these seven powers are likened to seven 
ferocious beasts by the prophets in Daniel and Revelation. Now what came after that power of Babylon? Just mentioned it a second ago. It was Medo-Persia, wasn't it? Medo-Persia added a little refinement to the Babylonian philosophy. Didn't they? They had an idea that anything that their king said was unchangeable. It was immutable. Now let me ask you something. When the God of heaven says something, is it unchangeable? Pretty much it is, isn't it? God's law, for example, is immutable, isn't it? It doesn't change. Remember, God said to the prophet Malachi, he said, I change not, Malachi 4.6. James says, with him there is no variableness nor shadow of turning, right? So in imitation, the counterfeit system of the devil is also immutable, see? By the way, when you're thinking about this, you know, not changing and immutable... Have you ever heard of any Christian church that says, or professed Christian church today, that says, we're immutable, we don't change? Well, that idea came from Medo-Persia. Okay? After Medo-Persia was the power of Greece. Now, Greece adopted the Babylonian system of worship, because they also uh, were sun worshipers. And all these things developed, you know, through Medo-Persia and into Greece, they developed out of the root Babylon. But the Greeks added a sophisticated system of human philosophy called humanism. Humanism. And I'm not going to get into this this system uh, of Greek philosophy here. Uh, It's just too involved. But if you want to study a little bit about it, Dr. Edward Sutherland, now he was one of the founders of Madison College. He wrote a lot about it. And you can get his book, It's called Living Fountains or Broken Cisterns. And in that book, he discusses the difference between an educational system based on Greek philosophy and the system of education that God has set up for his people. Very interesting book. Very very, uh, uh, enlightening book. Now, notice this interesting statement in Zechariah. And we're considering these powers. I want you to notice this interesting statement in Zechariah about what's to happen in the time of the end. That's the time we're living in, isn't it? Zechariah 9, verses 12 to 13. Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. When I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. Now, the sons of Zion are the sons of God. They're the sons of faith. And the sons of Greece are the sons of reason and human philosophy. Okay? And Greek philosophy... Um, wow. I mean, when I went to the university, just everything's Greek, you know. It's had a tremendous influence on education from that time clear to today. It's part of the devil's overall system to destroy God's people. Right? After Greece, the fourth power that the devil used to try to control the world, to try to destroy the people of God, was the pagan Roman Empire, described as such a ferocious beast that Daniel could find no beast in natural world that, that would 
be equal to this power. He called it a great and dreadful and terrible beast, didn't he? With iron teeth it would break in pieces and bruise and crush. Did you know that we still have the effects of Roman law as they were refined during the Middle Ages? You find it in canon law. It's with us still today. And uh, Adventists who are familiar with Alonzo Jones, A.T. Jones, he wrote a book called The Two Republics. Have you heard of that before? The Two Republics? He compares, in this book, he compares Rome and the United States. And I'll tell you, and it's a pretty big book. I think it's like, well, I've seen, seen it before. It's like 900 pages. Um, it's very thorough. Uh, the majority of people have no idea how much of our government is derived from ancient Rome. Because you see, they had a republic. Rome did. And they had a senate. And they had all these things that we see today. Again, we're not going to spend time studying more about Rome. That's described in a great deal in the early part of uh, the book, The Great Controversy. In the New Testament, the pagan Roman power tried to destroy the church of God by violence, and they failed, didn't they? And after the devil failed at destroying the church of Christ through the Roman power by violence, and and he tried through Babylon and through Medo-Persia and through the Greeks and here with Rome, well, he decided he had to change his tactics. And so he took everything that he tried in Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, and he combined it all into one masterpiece power to try to control the world. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 13. And you begin to see this amalgamation of all these powers, you see. Revelation 13 and verse 1. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And I want you to notice here in verse 1 that that this beast in Revelation is rising up out of the sea and he has what? Seven heads and ten horns. Do you remember any other beast having seven heads and ten horns? There was a beast that had ten horns back in Daniel 7. You remember that? And which beast was that? That was the pagan Roman Empire. And this beast has some likeness to the pagan Roman Empire. That's what we're being told here. Now let's notice some other things about this beast. Look at verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard. Okay, there's one thing. And his feet were as the feet of a bear. Interesting. There's a second thing. And his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. There's a third thing. And the dragon gave him his power. Fourth. There's four beasts there. We're in there. Four descriptions. And his seat and great authority. The dragon gave him that. So we read in verse 2 that this beast was like a leopard. Now which power was the leopard? I'm, I'm testing your prophecy skills here this morning. Well, that was Greece, wasn't it? So this beast had some likenesses to Greece. It had that Greek philosophy. By the way, it was a part of Babylon, but Greek philosophy developed into a much higher extent. To a much higher extent, it was from Greek philosophy. Let me tell you this: 
that the idea came that a human being had something inside of him that was immortal. And when you died, well, you didn't really die, you just went on living in another form. That was developed to a great extent through, you, you've heard the, uh, the man Plato. Well, that's how it came into Christianity. That's where it actually come, comes from. You can't find it in the Bible, can you? So, there was the likeness of this leopard in this beast. In fact, it says the beast was like a leopard, <laughs> doesn't it? Then it says what? It says his feet were like the feet of a bear. Well, which power was that? That was Medo-Persia, wasn't it? And then it says that his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Well, which power was that? That was Babylon. So you have everything that the devil had learned from all the powers of the past that he tried to use to control the world and destroy God's people. He had all that rolled into one. Well, he even said the dragon there. So the dragon is Satan, see? So the spirit of prophecy calls this beast, he calls this the devil's, she calls it the devil's masterpiece. Through this power, the most tragic thing has happened to the human race now for over 1,500 years. Namely, billions of people have been led to believe that they're going to have eternal life. But the fact is they're, they're, they're never going to have it and they're going to be shocked at the end that they're not going to have it. They're under this deception from this mystery Babylon, from this power. They think they have immortal life and they're going to find out that they don't. And that's, uh, that's tragic. That's tragic. Now Paul describes this same power. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But notice what it's called by Paul. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. Paul says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now what's sin? We know what sin is. The Bible describes sin as what? That's right. Sin is the transgression of the law. And the man of sin would be a man that teaches people to do what? break God's law, right? He's a man of sin. Now, the devil knew that if he tried to teach people to break all of the Ten Commandments, well, they're not going to do that, are they? <laughs> they wouldn't believe it. They wouldn't follow it. But he also knew, as James said, if you break one, you've broken how many? You've broken them all. Now, speaking of that, I want you to remember this and never forget this. This is what the Bible teaches us, friends. Remember this, always. Keep this very clearly in your mind. Because we need to understand this as we go through these end times. The Ten Commandments, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, let me finish it here. The Ten Commandments are not ten laws. The Ten Commandments are actually one law. I don't want you to ever forget that. And I'm not going to take the time to read it, 
in the Bible, but it's described that way many times. You can go to James chapter 2, and James describes it that way. You can go to Exodus 24, it's described that way. That's just a couple of references there. In the Christian world today, people believe and they teach that the law of God is done away with. It was nailed to the cross. You don't have to keep it under the new covenant, they'll say. Haven't you heard that? You know where that teaching comes from? That teaching was not going on in the Christian world in the 16th century. Did you know that? In the 16th century, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, both Roman Catholics and Protestants taught that you needed to keep the law of God. All Christians believe that you needed to keep the law of God. Martin Luther preached sermon after sermon after sermon on the Ten Commandments and the necessity of keeping the Ten Commandments. I mean, Martin Luther believed in the Ten Commandments. Now, we understand, you know, we know that he didn't understand the Sabbath. Ellen White's very clear that because of the darkness that the, the Christian world was in, they could not be brought to all the light of truth immediately. Okay? So he didn't understand it. But he believed in keeping the Ten Commandments. A couple hundred years later, after Luther, John Wesley preached about the Ten Commandments over and over and over and over again. And by the way, John Wesley understood the difference between the moral law and the ceremonial law too. He understood that. John Wesley did not keep the ceremonial law, but he taught that the moral law was binding in all time. You know, in the days of John Wesley, if you were a Christian, you believed in the Ten Commandments. That was in the 1700s. So what happened in the last couple hundred years that this teaching got to going around that the law of God was nailed to the cross? Well, you know where it came from? God led the Protestant churches step by step into more truth. And you see, Luther didn't understand the truth about baptism and a lot of things, but God led the Protestant churches to more and more truth. And when he led them to an understanding of the seventh-day Sabbath, do you know what happened? The great majority rejected it. See, that's all wrapped up in the first angel's message, you see. And, and there were people that rejected every point of truth that God had brought to the Advent movement, the first angel's message rejected. And if you reject one, you reject the second and the third messages as well. And you see, when, when Protestantism started, there were still Episcopalians. Now, Episcopalians are just one step out of the Catholic Church, essentially. They're, the only difference, really, between a, an Episcopalian and a Catholic is that the Episcopalians don't acknowledge the Pope. But except for that one specific point, they're just the same. I mean, they have monks and they have nuns and they have just about everything that you can find in the Roman Catholic Church, except they don't acknowledge the Pope. They're essentially just one step away from the papacy, you know. And Lutherans are another step away. And Baptists are a further step away and so forth. But when the time came that God led His people to an understanding of the Seventh-day Sabbath, the majority rejected it. Now let me ask you, if you reject it, but you believe in the Ten Commandments, that doesn't make much sense, does it? How can you say you believe in the Ten Commandments if you reject the fourth one? All Christians 200 years ago believed in the Ten Commandments, but how can you say you believe the Ten Commandments if you don't keep the Sabbath? And when you understand what the fourth commandment means, it doesn't make any sense. And so within the last, oh, 150 years or so, in order to explain a position uh, so that it would be logical, they were forced to try to explain that the law of God was nailed to the cross. 
Now, it's very interesting if you've studied with people who believe this way, they, they say, now actually we keep nine of the commandments. We just don't keep one. We just, we just keep the ceremonial part of the law. We don't keep that ceremonial part. That, that's part of the fourth commandment. Well, now, what is ceremonial about the fourth commandment? You know, concerning the ceremonial law, the Apostle Paul says it was added because of transgressions. So let me ask you this quick question. Was the Sabbath added because of transgressions? Absolutely not. Exactly. The Sabbath was given at creation before there was any transgression. The Sabbath was not added because of transgressions. It existed before there was sin. The Sabbath wasn't even a part of the the plan of salvation because the Sabbath was given before man needed a plan of salvation. The Sabbath was given to Adam and Eve in their unfallen state in the Garden of Eden as one of the gifts of God. It says here, concerning this power, this is the fifth power described as a you know, an amalgamation, that composite beast in Revelation 13, this power is described as the man of sin by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's described as the, the mystery of lawlessness. And over and over again, Paul says that the identifying mark of this power is that it is against the law of God. Daniel 7.25 describes this same power and says that he will intend to change times and law. And friends, if you're going to be ready for the crisis that's coming, you, you must know absolutely why and what your position is on the law of God and whether or not you're willing to go to prison or lose your job or die even because you keep the seventh-day Sabbath, the fourth commandment. And there's going to be a group of people that are going to be taken to heaven without seeing death. But let me tell you, before they are translated, they're going to face a death decree, and it's going to look like they're going to die. And those people are going to say, look, whether you kill me or not, I'm going to keep the Sabbath anyway. I'm going to keep the law of God. And the devil tries to tell people that either you can't keep God's law or you don't have to. But we know. Romans 8 teaches that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can... You can put to death the deeds of the flesh. And Romans 6 says the same thing. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do it. God will give you all the power that you need to keep His law, if you want to keep it. And if we're going to go through the coming crisis and be ready for Jesus to come, we have to know exactly what the principles of the law of God is. On what is it based, and and what does it mean, and what does it mean to live according to it. Because that's going to be the issue in the last days, the law of God and the Sabbath. That you study the history of Babylon and and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome or the papacy and you'll find that, that through them the devil tried to force people to break God's law. Isn't that true? What happened with Babylon? Those three Hebrew worthies on the plain of Dura, what was that about? What were they trying to do? They were trying to force them to break the second commandment, weren't they? They said, we'll throw you into a burning, fiery furnace if you don't. Right? Why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den by the Medo-Persian government? Because he refused to pray to the king. He said, I'm going to pray only to God, the God of heaven. And he refused to break the first commandment. Isn't that right? 
Why did the king of the south and the king of the north during the Greek period kill over 40,000 Jews? Because they would not participate in their pagan idolatrous sacrifices. They, they wouldn't break the second commandment. Why were so many people killed by pagan Rome? Because the emperor claimed to be divine. You see the pattern here? The Christians would not acknowledge his divinity. They would not break the first commandment. So millions of Christians were destroyed, killed by the pagan Roman Empire. Now there are other things. They refused to baptize babies and just different tenets of the church. But it comes down to that power was trying to get God's people to break the law of God. The same was true during the reign of the papacy during the Dark Ages. And we're, we'll never know until the Day of Judgment how many people were killed for one of two reasons. And like I said, many more. Some, some they wouldn't bow down to images such as the Virgin Mary, and some because they refused to give up the Seventh-day Sabbath. Well, the prophecy predicted that in the time of the end there would be a new development of satanic power. Now, what is this new manifestation of satanic power that would be developed right about the time of the end and would continue until the time of the end? In fact, it will continue clear to the second coming of Christ. Let's go to Revelation chapter 11. This is the sixth power. Revelation 11. It says here that God's two witnesses will prophesy in sackcloth for 42 months. That's the 1260 year period, right? But notice Revelation 11 and verse 7. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Now this is in the future tense in the Greek, friends. And so it should be translated literally when they are finishing or when they shall be finishing their testimony. So when they shall be finishing their testimony, now notice here's another ferocious beast. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So here's another ferocious beast coming up out of the bottomless pit as ferocious as the pagan Roman Empire, any other power that the devil has ever used before. This is a new development, you see, of satanic power that would develop about the close of the 1260-year period. This beast that came up out of the bottomless pit was the power that developed and caused the French Revolution. You can read... Um, the chapter in Great Controversy on the French Revolution, she goes right through this scripture phrase by phrase. Now, let me tell you something. The philosophy behind the French Revolution was a philosophy which denied the authority of the scriptures and, and even the God of heaven. You see, people had been told that the religion of Rome was Christianity. Again, 1260 years, okay? If you don't follow the church, they put you to death. Oh, we're going to kill you. If you repent, we're still going to kill you, but your soul will be saved. You see, that's that's the way they would do it. And, and, and it was this religion for the 1260 years that 
they told the whole world that is actually what Christianity is. Now, it really wasn't, was it? It was the devil's counterfeit. But they'd been told that it was Christianity for over a thousand years. And finally, when they got so immersed in that system after hundreds of years, they said, if that's what Christianity is, and if that's what the Bible teaches, we don't want anything to do with it. So what do you call that? What do you call that philosophy? It was an atheistic philosophy, see? Notice the next verse, Revelation 11, verse 8. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Which spiritually is called? So it says this power is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. That's very interesting, isn't it? Sodom, what do we know about Sodom? Sodom represents moral degradation, doesn't it? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of the, their moral degradation. What about Egypt? Egypt was the power where Pharaoh said what? Who's God that I should follow him, that I should know him, right? The philosophy that developed and caused the French Revolution was developed actually by a man by the name of uh, Adam Weishaupt at Ingolstadt University. And they date the founding of this philosophy actually May 1st, 1776. Isn't that interesting? Now, Americans think that 1776 is an important date, right? And it is. But actually, there are several important things that happened in 1776. Of course, this was the year that the United States declared their Declaration of Independence, but it was also the beginning of the Illuminati, developed by Adam Weishaupt, the philosophy that culminated eventually and developed into the French Revolution. It was also that same year that Adam Smith wrote a book called Wealth of Nations, which defended the concepts of capitalism, you know, free enterprise, upon actually the United States was built. So 1776 was a very significant year, really. But this philosophy that Adam Weishaupt developed and that culminated in the French Revolution, first of all, it was against the rights to private property and inheritance. All property was to belong to the state. Furthermore, it was against patriotism to one's country and uh, uh, allegiance to one's family, even. And finally, it was in favor of the destruction of all ordered governments in the world and the setting up of a one-world government. The very same thing that Nimrod tried to do clear back at the beginning. Remember when we started talking about this? God had prevented that by dispersing the people and confusing their languages there at the, you know, the Tower of Babel. So this philosophy... This atheistic philosophy was in favor of the destruction of all ordered governments in the world and the setting up of a one-world government and a new world order, which actually then would be ruled by Lucifer. You see, because that's been his goal from the very beginning. And this philosophy, which anyone today is familiar with who's studied about communism, was first developed by Adam Weishaupt, who developed the secret order called the Illuminati and was later updated you see, uh, by Karl Marx in his book, Communist Manifesto. 
and that was in 1848. It was developed, and the world saw what would happen if a country adopted this philosophy in France. The whole world was watching, and it resulted in the French Revolution. But the believers in this philosophy didn't want this to get control of the country of France. You see, they wanted to control the world. See? And if you study in the history books, you'll find that in 1848, in the big cities of the world, there were uprisings. And there was an attempt to cause a worldwide revolution and set up what we call communism or socialism, atheistic socialism, all over the world. There was an attempt to do that in 1848. Isn't that interesting? That's four years after the three angels' messages were given. It was in that very same year that Ellen White had a vision. Do you know what Ellen White saw in that vision? She saw Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. She saw things in this world getting ready for the closing scenes. And Jesus held up His hands and He said, Hold! Hold! Now why would He say that? Because God's people weren't ready. So the worldwide revolution that would have occurred in 1848, God stalled it off for another almost 70 years. Just like He, you know, he stalled it off back there at the Tower of Babel when He confused the languages of the people. But I'll tell you, even though it was stalled, it was not killed. I want you to notice what Ellen White wrote later, right around the turn of the century. She wrote about it. It's in the book Education, page 228. She says, At the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine, but human. The centralizing of wealth and power. Boy, do we see that today? The vast combinations for the enrichment of the few at the expense of the many. Don't we see that today? The combinations of the poor classes for the defense of their interests and claims. The spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. She said that there is a worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, and it's tending to convulse the whole world in a struggle similar to what we saw in France. Haven't we seen this, friends? It happened in Russia. We saw it happen in Eastern Europe. We've seen it happen in China. We've seen it happen in Africa. We've seen it happen in countries in South America. This philosophy has been all over the world, friends. And this is a special development of satanic power during the end time. The very same thing that he tried to figure out how to pull off during Nimrod's day. A one world government that the Lord forestalled and didn't allow to happen. We see here from this statement in Education 228 that in the end of the world, this, this same philosophy must again be met. And when you understand this, when you understand this, you're to the point where you can understand what's going on in the world today. You see, the devil has two different systems that apparently oppose each other. But either one that gets control, he's got control, you see? 
On the one hand, you have the masterpiece of counterfeit Christianity. But if people get disgusted with that, he flips them over and he says, well, if you don't like that, then take this. And so they take humanism and atheistic philosophy and they say, well, religion's no good. Then they accept this. And there's a gigantic struggle developing right now to get control of the entire world with this kind of philosophy, including the United States. We're very familiar with it, are we not? And I want to tell you, friends, they're within just a little bit of having absolute control of this country. Now, I'm not a prophet. And I'm not saying what's going to happen. Whether the the masterpiece of counterfeit Christianity is in control or or whether the, the red beast is in control, the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit, whichever one, the devil's in control either way, isn't he? I'm telling you, we're facing some very interesting times. And if you study Revelation 17 very carefully, you'll see that right, right at the end there's going to be another flip-flop. We're not done flip-flopping yet in France. France was the most loyal of all the nations of Europe to the papacy. But eventually they got disillusioned and they flipped. Did you see when you flip back and forth between these two, either way the devil's got you. Now in the middle of all this turmoil, that's going to be, as this turmoil that's going to be all over the world, I want to tell you friends, we're entering times when there's going to be turmoil and absolute confusion all over the world. What you're going to see is you're going to see these two powers get into a collision. That's where it's headed. And that's the way the devil works, isn't it? One against the other. We're going to see the image to the beast enforced in this country. And that's the seventh power, isn't it? We studied six so far, and that's the seventh one. And of course, there's an eighth one, Revelation says, but he's just one of the seven. See, they're going to flip. <laughs> We're going to have the image of the beast, but then it's going to flip. And in the middle of that, where are you and I going to be? I mean, I don't know. Some of us might be in a cave somewhere. Some of us might be in some prison somewhere. Let me tell you, beloved, it actually doesn't matter where you are. What matters is who you are and who you know. And I want to tell you, friend. The times in which we're living today, there is security in nothing earthly. Nothing. You know, people thought in the past, well, we've got this property. We've got this property. Let me tell you, we're living in times when your property can be taken away from you pretty quick. Your liberties can be taken away from you pretty quick. Is there something that they can't take away from you? Yes, there is. If you know the Lord, there's something they can't take away from. Now, I hope that nobody's discouraged that I've studied these powers that the devil has used down through the ages and at the end of time to try to destroy God's people. But we need to understand what we're up against so that we can understand the importance of the spiritual preparation. I'm telling you, friends, we we began this study by reading... Daniel 12 and verse 1. We're facing the most momentous struggles of the ages. But you know, God's going to win. There's no question about that. 
the God we serve, always wins. Sometimes it doesn't look like it, though. Sometimes it takes faith because you could, could have to stand in a position where it seems like you're all alone. Let me ask you, you look back through the Old Testament, did Daniel get in a situation like that where it looked like he stood all alone? Did Paul get in a situation like that? He said one time when he had to stand before Nero, he said, everybody forsook me. I was alone. But he said, the Lord didn't forsake me. And I want to tell you, friends, the Lord won't forsake you. The important point is you and I better not forsake Him. We better stay close to Him. Amen? Friends, there's one that is altogether lovely and He's all-powerful. We have no idea the power of God that we serve. Incredible power. So what we have to do is get close to Him. You're not going to be able to face the image to the beast and all these satanic powers that you'll have to face right at the end. You're not going to be able to face it unless you're close to Jesus. Unless you're with Him. Are you spending time with Jesus every day, friends? Are you learning to know Him? Are you studying His Word? Are you you studying His life and character? There's only two kinds of religion in the world. Remember, we studied... Uh, who and what the church is. There's only two churches. There's only two kinds of religion in the world. In the end time, there will only be two kinds of people in the world. The pressure is going to be put on and everybody's going to go one way or they're going to go the other. All of us are going to be in one group or the other, friends. Our character is going to become rapidly more godlike or more satanic as we approach the end. Oh, friends, you read these things, you study these things, you begin to understand, you can tremble. Are you spending time with Jesus? Are you keeping your eyes focused on Him? Do you understand that He has all power? And if you're in Him, whether they say they're going to kill you or whatever anybody says, you can trust Him. You can obey Him and He has promised to make it possible for you to be faithful and true and loyal to Him and obey His law. He has promised to give you the power and strength to do it if you decide to do it. Don't be unfaithful to Him and decide to serve another master. We've got to get close to Jesus, friends. We've got to spend time with Him. We've got to know Him. We've got to know the principles of His character and His law. And when I study about the powers that the devil has worked through, I know my only safety is to commit my life fully to Jesus Christ. And beloved, that's your only safety too. Without Him, the strongest can very rapidly become the weakest when the pressure's on. So before I finish here, I'd like to commit my life to Jesus Christ. Would you like to as well? He's the one who can get you through the storm and the tempest of the last days. If you have enough faith and trust in Him as the storm comes, you're going to have great joy, friends, because you know that the storm proves that we're, we're just about home. And just on the other side of that storm, you're going to see your loved ones coming up out of the graves and you're going to go up in the air and it's going to be a wonderful time. It's going to be a wonderful time. We need to commit our lives fully to Him so we're ready for what's coming. So, beloved, if that's what you want to do, I'll invite you to pray with me now. 
before we go here this morning. So I invite you to bow your heads with me. And let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for Jesus. We thank you so very, very much that you you love us with a love that's unending, that's that cannot die. And that you've made promises to us who are so unfaithful. And all we can do is trust in thee. We can give our lives to Jesus. He's promised to hold us in his hands. He's promised to cover us. Though these troublous times rage, we know a storm is coming. We recognize the power of our enemy. We know our enemy. We pray for grace. We pray for knowledge. We pray for the Holy Spirit to so fill us that people see Jesus in us and that we will be found faithful. Please send angels to walk with us, angels from on high, to keep us safe and our family safe and help us, Lord. The harvest is soon to end. The Master is soon to come, but we have much work to do. Give us the grace and strength to finish that work. And please continue to be with us throughout this Sabbath day that we may keep it holy and bring glory to Thy name. We love You, Lord, and we thank You for hearing this prayer. In the name of Jesus.